Dhamma friends. So we've talked about a few things here, dropped in a few ideas, and I want to elaborate on some of them. I feel sadness for the shortness of this retreat. I would love to connect around the Dhamma with you more. Um, But let me just try to share a few things about the practice and the ways that we can open to joy. Um, So one of the things we've talked about, mentioned, is how mindfulness, awareness, this practice involves an intuitive kind of knowing, a different kind of knowing. It's a different way of developing knowledge than thinking things through. Um, it's a totally different avenue to the cultivation of wisdom than thinking it through. It's just using this capacity, calling on this capacity for awareness. And our moment-to-moment experience, again, everything's right here. And in this way, we learn. It's a learning process. We learn about what it's like to be a human being and the mechanism of suffering, and the mechanism of the cessation of suffering more and more over time. So we've also, of course, talked about insight, and this is Insight Meditation Society. And But uh, actually, a lot of times the question can come up, and it did come up in uh, one or more groups today, what is insight? Like, what, what is that? What are we talking about? Um, you mentioned that. What is that? And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that and how it happens, different ways that it can happen. So insight. This is actually a translation of a Pali word, vipassana, which means essentially seeing clearly. So we're using, you know, when talking about insight meditation, it's actually referring to this practice of vipassana, which comes from the Theravada tradition. Um, it's a practice uh, involving mindfulness and following the Noble Eightfold Path um, in order to uncover for ourselves through our own experience uh, more closely the truths, uh, some universal truths about our experience and to, through that um, that intuitive development of wisdom and compassion to begin to live more aligned with those truths and therefore to um, disentangle ourselves from patterns of suffering. So what are these truths that we can see through this practice? And, you know, just, I can only kind of skim the surface of talking about them. Um, And how does that happen? So um, the insights that we're talking about usually, um, one of the pithiest kind of concise ways to talk about them is through these three universal characteristics that we can see that Basically, all of our experiences of body and mind are marked by. They all have this, and we ultimately see this through practice. Um, and the first of these is probably, you know, really familiar to you, impermanence. In Pali, it's anicca. Um, and in what we see over time with practice is not just sort of the impermanence that, you know, we're all 
quite attuned to uh, on some level, but in some way know that we, we don't fully intuitively live in alignment with it. You know, the, intu- the, the fact that we're all going to die, um, the fact that the seasons change and things are changing. But really, this Nietzsche is referring to the complete flow of experience. Everything is arising and passing in, in, with incredible rapidity. And that's the truth. So we can't hold on. We keep trying to cling to this ephemeral experience. And that, that, that effort to cling is what um, gets us bound up in suffering. So how do we see this? Um, you know, and just trying to put it in a few nutshells with our mindfulness practice. Well, one way of describing it, um, sort of classically, is we, with our mindfulness, so we're, we stop turning away from what's happening moment to moment. We stop not knowing that it's happening. Okay, so in this moment, there's, we can feel a moment of softness. And in this moment, we feel a moment of, we notice a moment of anger. And in this moment, you know, we notice a moment of hearing is happening. And we start to see um, that we notice the individual characteristics of those because we're being aware of them. We're stopped pushing away, stopped trying to hold on. And we're just there. Oh, in this moment, this is happening. And we see the individual characteristics of those experiences. At some point, just like our minds like solve a puzzle to some degree, bit by bit by bit over time, the uni- what's actually completely universal about all these experiences starts to pop out at us. Whoa, they're all arising and passing. <laughs> they're all shifting and changing. So what I take to be Tara is actually really just a flow of sensations, thoughts, sounds. It's just a flow. So this is um, this first universal characteristic of Anicca. The Anicca, the truth of our experience uh, of Anicca, is, is obscured uh, to a large extent, by concepts. Our minds, of course, we need concepts to interact in the world. Um, But concepts tend to solidify things that aren't really solid. So, for example, there's a concept of the breath. But what's actually happening? Like, what actually is the breath? It's just uh, flow and change, different sensations in every moment. But in using that concept, we have this sense that there is something solid there, my breath. Then then we lam on top of that my breath, and I'll get to that later. These three universal characteristics are actually not so separate. We see them all together. And, um, you know, we can see this in movement also, the how concepts solidify. Um, for example, you know, you could just look at my hand right now and see it moving and... Is this hand the same as this hand? The same as this hand? Well, it's different in its different form. What you actually saw was form and color moving. There was the seeing. And then the mind created a solidity. Is this the same hand as it was just a few moments ago? Actually, we know scientifically it's not, right? So it's interesting how the Buddhist teachings have over time really... The you know, modern science has will just state what the Buddha said a long time ago. He actually said uh, in describing the body that it's like foam, like sea foam. And we know that that's actually true. There's so much more. It's basically space and movement, right? Matter, even something that seems so solid like this podium, right? Um, so we can just 
we start to see this through our mindfulness practice. And um, the second universal characteristic is, um, it's best described really through the Pali word, dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, which is often translated as suffering, but really has a, a broader meaning. It does include what we typically think of as suffering. Uh, in terms of our mental suffering, difficult emotions, anything that's happening in the mind that feels afflictive, and then the bodily discomfort that we feel, it includes that. And it also includes um, the fact that these experiences, even when they're pleasant, are unreliable. So that's a second kind of dukkha. Uh, So even the pleasant is just not going to really bring us lasting happiness because somewhere in us we know that it's impermanent. So you see how these these three characteristics really are actually more related and intertwined than they are separate. So there's a fragility to our experience. And somewhere in us we know that, but we keep trying to maximize the pleasant, push away at the unpleasant. And in that reactivity, again, we get bound up. Um, So the more that we are able to connect with and understand. So part of the practice is to really understand what our experience of afflictive experiences are. What is suffering? Like, what does it actually consist of? Um, And we may think that we know the familiar kinds of suffering, like difficult emotions or painful uh, body states. But this practice actually allows us to get to know what does that actually feel like being lonely? Like, what is that experience? If we can actually sit with that with a loving awareness, is that, is there a, what's what's in that experience that, you know, is is suffering? Or, for example, the the experience of impatience. I had a really um, uh, great... what felt like a really good insight for me because I tend to be an impatient person. I tend towards the aversive, afflictive states. The aversive, afflictive states are all forms of related to anger, (laughs) Um, including impatience, frustration, you know, irritability, that kind of thing. And this is just an example of how we can start to see, you know, what's what's really at the root of some of our common afflictive experiences. So I was practicing at a retreat center in Myanmar to wait in line to wash your dishes at this retreat center. <laughs> um, it's a slower line than it is here. And, uh, you know, I was just checking, just practicing, noticing what's coming up in the body and the mind. I got in the line and I was about three people back. And I just noticed this impatience arise in the, in the heart. And, and my mind saying, I should be up there. Like physically, I should be up there. Like not necessarily, and I noticed the sense of, there's some sense of possession that's at the root of this, of a a feeling of impatience. Some sense of possession, even an absurd sense of possession. I mean, do you ever get impatient driving the car and feel like you should be up there? Well, you're not. You know, you, you, you can't physically have be where you're not. But our minds will, will lead us into, you know, a sense of, um, sense of possession, an idea that something would be pleasant, and then we're connected to that. And then 
that we don't have it causes a sense of anger. So we can check out, just as an example of how we actually come to understand what gives rise to suffering. And in that way, we start to understand the mechanism out of it. Um, so that's a part of the practice. And, you know, and so it's a tender it, practice that we, um, that we undergo. And we, that's why we need to do it together. And that's why retreats where we do it together, and we do it together in a really supportive way, hopefully like this one, are so important. You know, I think it's important to know that's, that it's totally okay and part of the process to, like, cry in the hall. And I think some folks have done that, which is, you know, feeling comfortable to do that is important because we just are being with our whole experience as human beings. And in that way, really um, uncovering how we can be human beings in a much more peaceful, easeful, aligned way. So the final universal characteristic is not self, not self related to the other ones. This is, this is said to be the hardest to understand. Um, and it's important not to try to intellectualize not self. What it's referring to is like all of these changing physical and mental phenomena uh, are not fit to be regarded as self because they are shifting and changing all the time. There's nothing we come to see that we can't really, uh, when we're solidifying around those experiences, taking them to be I, me, or mine, that we're, we're actually causing a contraction in our heart and we're not seeing the truth. We're not seeing the truth of the ephemerality and therefore the not-self nature of those. So this is just something not to take on as a belief, but to know as a part of the practice, not to take on as, you know, just like a choke, like trying to just take it on as a belief, but to just practice through and see if, know it's part of the teachings and see if it arises. You know, it can be helpful to kind of be in the middle of a retreat and just reflect for a moment, like, because we're so settled, we can kind of thought, think like, well, where did all the thoughts go? There were some really loud thoughts in that last sitting. <laughs> some of them were really loud. And um, there was a sense of being, of being really real um, and really defining oneself. Um, or maybe not even in the sitting. You know, how many times has the good meditator or the bad meditator arose? Um, it can happen a lot, this sense, this real strong belief and feel, it can feel really real, really solid, really true, really defining who you are. And yet as we practice, we start to see these arisings and passings of the creation of a self and then the dissipation of it. We can even see, you know, as, as we practice, we can see a thought arise and pass in a poof. And in that moment, it was really defining us. Um, So when we have insight and we, um, this way of developing this intuitive knowledge through mindfulness, um, when we have, we can have little seeings, sometimes big ones into this. And I guarantee you, whether you know it or not, the practice works in a mysterious ways. I really appreciated Mel sharing earlier about the mystery of, uh, that really is a part of the Buddha Dharma. There are many paradoxes in it and, 
there are many questions actually that the Buddha refused to answer because he said, well, they don't, they're not onward leading towards really experiencing the cessation of suffering. So don't get caught up in that. And sometimes we just need to accept the mystery, the not knowing, uh, the paradox, um, such as the paradox of, well, we're practicing for some onward leading, we have an aim, we have an aspiration, and yet we also know that any moment that we're relating to our present moment experience as it's not enough, um, well, then we're, we're in a state of suffering, right? So it's like we have to relate to the practice as if there is a path that we're on, and yet there's no path. Something my teacher shared with me when I was stuck on a path. There's no path to correct me. So there are mysteries and paradoxes. What happens, one of the things that happens when insight arises is it changes the sense, our understanding of the past and the future, because we start to really see, oh, it was all always changing, and it will always be this way. I mean, this is the way that experience will be in the future also. And in that way, then, our, our relationship to experience changes. And freedom can come more and more. Freedom, joy. So I want to share this poem, part of this poem. It's an excerpt from a poem, my favorite Dhamma poem. And it is said to be, and I want to believe it is, um, a poem about, perhaps from, uh, Taijutsu, the abbess of a nunnery in 18th century, a Zen Buddhist nunnery uh, in Japan. It's taken, it's written in the Women of the Way, which was edited by Sally Teasdale. Um, And it's basically an awakening poem about her, what she saw and how she uh, came awake through through seeing these things. And it it really touches on all three of the characteristics to some degree, Anicca, impermanence, dukkha, the unreliability, fragility of experience, and the not-self. So here is this excerpt from this poem. She saw that a rising phenomena arose, abided, and passed away. She saw that the knowing of this arose, abided, and passed away. Then she knew that there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. So this is pointing to the promise of the practice, letting go of that clenched fist in her mind. So developing insight, our practice, it's really supported by a sense of safety and belonging. You know, being able to drop into an awareness moment to moment, an intimacy, as Yang was talking about earlier today, being intimate with our experience, having... Having, developing stillness of mind and tranquility that support the practice. You know, um, if we're in a place of not feeling welcomed, not so safe, you know, that can um, make it much harder to practice. So it can be hard, you know, if you're of API heritage and you're practicing 
uh, in a tradition where you come to retreat, for example, and there aren't, it's like, wait a minute, this is like, this guy, he's from Asia, everybody else for 2,600 years is, and suddenly it's like, I'm a sea of, you know, Nani, API-ness, like, whoa, <laughs> how did that happen? And are people really, and it can feel like, and it can be like, people are not really, they're kind of obscuring um, the contribution, the origin of the practice. They're kind of obscuring sometimes, and it can seem like, okay, well, was this some kind of European-generated teachings? No, 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 no. And that can feel, in, in many ways, you know, we can have many experiences and it's kind of white-dominated um, environments that make it challenging. Um, so it can come up the question, you know, how do we practice in these environments, and particularly also with, you know, maybe European American teachers. And that question came up when we did the online API Heritage Retreat that Young and I taught in 2020. Um, and one thing, you know, that kind of helps me is is actually connecting really with the truth of the way things are. One of the manifestations of it is that they're, you know, whenever I see teachers, I see their lineage of teachers. And in just practically a hop, skip, and a jump, it's it's an Asian teacher, right? Um, And we're in, we're actually, you know, we're not so self. We're not self. We're what we are in every moment is a web of causes and conditions coming together. And these causes and conditions have come through years and years and years. And in connecting with the teacher, you're connecting with everyone that they've learned from. So, and you can check out, are those teachers really, um, is there a relationship with a real sense of gratitude and honoring towards the heritage? And... It really helped me that um, one of my teachers, who I mentioned earlier, his main teacher on Vipassana retreat was actually Deepa Ma. So there's a picture of her up in room um, 200, and she was from Kolkata. She came here and taught a number of three-month retreats. She was an absolute meditation master, a mother and a grandmother, Uh, very little money, had a lot of suffering in her life. Um, but she generously came here and taught many of the teachers. And um, my teacher shared with me that in when he was having a particular difficulty in practice, you know, they were there was having an interview here. They were having a one-on-one practice discussion, and she was guiding him through this difficult stage of practice. She actually took his hand and just stroked his hand and said, "You will gain much merit. You will gain much merit." by continuing. So he had the strength to continue. So she brought, you know, all of her grandmotherliness, her mother maternal self to this the way she taught. And you know, for me, I I, I like to think, you know, that having getting the teachings from him, they were from Deepama. You know? Um, and there's a beautiful way, beautiful, you know, way in which she taught that was so just herself and so South Asian. You can see pictures or videos of her, actually. What she did mostly with her students was give them blessings by, like, touching their head or their shoulders. Such a South Asian thing to do, for elders to do, to give blessings like that. And um, so 
that's the truth, and we can carry that always in our hearts about um, how the practice is showing up here. It's showing up in this way. And in this way, there's really, you know, the East and West are ideas. The East is here as, a, as we exemplify, you know, and um, the West is an idea. The East is an idea. And um, we need to have a little bit of fierceness and show up and, and within our own hearts hold that truth when it seems to be being obscured. So another mystery of the practice. So I've talked about a little bit about how mindfulness can support insight. Uh, but in fact... We can also have some insight sometimes by a heart-to-heart connection, um, a a transmission, right? Sometimes we can hear a teaching, be exposed to a teaching from a teacher, and it really kind of, or just another person, just another person, it really kind of jogs us and it shifts, it shifts us, frees our mind. Um, we, We kind of see a little bit of the truth, or maybe a lot. Well, this is certainly what happened in the suttas. I mean, sometimes the Buddha would be teaching, and after that, a number of people would immediately become enlightened. <laughs> you know, in the Lakana Sutta, which is the sutta about not-self, after that, five of his disciples just, boom. You know, he had that ability. And I bet he did, you know, like, wow. Um, because his transmission, ability to connect heart-to-heart, mind-to-mind, and show people the truth, you know, they already had something there, and... Uh, in their experience of some realizations and um, a huge wave of insight came. So we know that that can happen. And like I said, I think it can happen with just sometimes just a, you know, someone you're connected with. Just wake up and you get a little free. And so I want to share a little bit about um, one experience that was absolutely pivotal for me that feels in my life's experience, as pivotal and important as uh, some of the insights that I've had from deep mindfulness practice um, many, many years later. This happened way, way before I started practicing. Um, But it really freed me. And um, so this happened in 1992. Yeah, dating myself. I was in college. I was in college. These are just making me smile, these memories. And um, I went to college in upstate New York, and I spent one summer in New York City. And I um, got involved in what was then called, and may still be called, the South Asian Lesbian and Gay Association in 1992. And we were agitating to be included in the India Day Parade. And so we did a lot of activism around that. And, um, but I was so fresh and young. Before that, you know, I, I was like, went through a period of like, oh, there are no other South Asian, lesbian, gay people. Oh, my God. But I got to New York, and I got involved with Salga, and I was just really young in every way and struggling with my identity. But one thing that was so supportive for me was that involved in Salga at the same time was um, Dave, was this guy named David Kalal, and he was also mixed. So, you know, I had the identity thing of work, you know, like uh, 
thinking, oh, I'm mixed race and therefore I'm confused and how will I ever fit in or how will I ever know who I am? And I, you know, my mind would ruminate on these things and, you know, I didn't belong, I didn't belong. This is, I'm saying this, but it's, it's an experience that many of us have and we tie it, we connect it to many different things, you know, whether it's being adopted or whether it's being, you know, not really knowing your first, the language, um, of your Asian heritage, or, you know, you'd name a ton of things, right? But that was, that was um, you know, where it was coming from for me, was uh, this think, thinking about being mixed race. And I said to David one day, and I was just standing there in an apartment in New York, and I said, David, I'm so confused. I don't know who I am. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, he said, you're not confused. You've just been told you're confused. You know exactly who you are. And it dawned on me that I did know exactly who I was. I knew who my father was. I knew who my mother was. I knew who my entire family was. I knew where I was from. I knew the impact of it. I knew knew all that. And it dawned on me that society had really just laid this whole trip on me. And was I going to really buy into that? It had laid this whole trip on me that there's only, you have to be one way or the other. You have to be, um, you know, really, there's a really racist strain in the United States of the one drop of blood rule that, you know, if you're mixed with any kind of non-white heritage or blood, then you're not white. And also, you know, because of that, there's tropes and stereotypes about mixed race people that we're confused, that we you know, uh, we're messed up. It's because it enforces the idea that there should be singular races, right? It's an enforcement mechanism. And he, sh- when he said that, I felt his total belief in his wholeness, his total belief that, you know, any sense of confusion around being mixed race was laid on him and that, that I was doing that. And from that moment on, you know, the thoughts come up, oh, of course they do come up. They come up that, oh, I don't, you know, like, I'm not quite right for this space, I'm not quite right for this South Asian space, or I'm not quite right for this other space, or API space, or whatever. But I just see them arising and passing, and I say, I see you. And in the suttas, they say, I see you, Mara, when there's some afflictive mind state that's coming up, that's keeping you away from freedom, right? Mara embodies this greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind. And I just, you know, that was a moment of I see you, Mara, and I keep on doing that. And it allows me to stay aimed at really what I want, how I want to show up in the world without having these mind states limiting me. Right? So there is no way I'd be sitting right here if not for that sense of uh, acceptance of my own wholeness. Um, and belonging, at least, to myself and definitely to the Dhamma. And the Dhamma strengthened all that, especially with the mindfulness. You can see when those things are arising or passing more. So we can be this for each other. You know, we can support each other, uh, as David did for me, in um, navigating the way in which the world might try to hold us back and the experiences that we've had might limit us. We can be this for each other, and this kind of retreat is part of that, hopefully, to the extent that we can really support it. Um, 
So there is this, we can start to really connect with joy in one way in connecting with like-minded practitioners, with other people on the path, people who are um, really engaged in a path of developing compassion and wisdom um, in this way. And I want to share about the fact that in many ways the path is described uh, in the suttas and in the way um, that one particular prolific um, monastic describes it as a actually involving a progressive refinement of the quality of joy. So we can start to tune into through our mindfulness practice. It does involve, you know, like uncovering the mechanism of suffering and things like that, but it, it does that through a through by taking us through experiences of joy we wouldn't you know necessarily connect with if we weren't really starting to follow the path um, one of them i just mentioned is the joy of connecting with others on the path um, mel shared beautifully about the joy of generosity which is the buddha's one of the buddha's teaching first teachings the joy of generosity and there's also really, classically, the path is often described as beginning with the um, bliss, the peace and the joy, lack of turmoil and lack of remorse that can come from uh, non-harming conduct, the sila, the following the precepts that Young uh, talked about at the beginning of the retreat. So we can actually experience the bliss of blamelessness the more we're connected with this uh, non-harming conduct. And that really brings about, actually, classically, that's really allows for the um, weakening of the turmoil in the mind so that there's enough stillness for the mindfulness and the concentration to grow. And then mind states like tranquility and rapture can arise. And they have their, their kind of, in my view, they have tinges of joy. It's, there's one word in English for joy, but this is really how the path is described as it's, it's a series of um, mind states that arise out of our practice of the whole noble path, including mindfulness. So one of the ways that it's described as, um, as uh, unfolding so these are kinds of unfoldings. In the suttas, there are ways in which practice, the insight practice, is described as unfolding. And one of them involves uh, is a teaching called the tra- called transcendental dependent arising. Yeah. So some of you are kind of going, yeah, I heard of this. <laughs> cool. Starts with suffering, actually, which we all experience because that's like the thir- second noble truth. But in this case. Suffering gives rise to confidence in the path. We encounter the path in some way. And then, you know, from the suffering, we start to turn towards it and see this as a way of um, uncovering, disentangling, uh, revealing the truth and, and setting us free. So suffering leads to confidence or faith in the practice, which leads to joy, which leads to rapture. Actually, that's describing enrapt attention with the object. So this is another kind of joy we can experience in the practice is actually when there's mindfulness, there's a kind of delight that can arise even when what's happening in our experience isn't pleasant. Um, so 
sometimes we can, you know, there's a joy in being able to meet difficult experience. Like, okay, there's this frustration or anger, but, oh, I'm actually able to actually see that with some interest. What does that feel like right now? Like the impatience story I shared. Like, what does that feel like? And then to meet and to know what it, what it is, about pushing it away, but there's just this interest. And because our typical habit of just pushing away or trying to hold on is dropped, there's the relief, the release of that, those contractions not being there in relationship to that experience. And that is a part of, as we develop that more and more, we can have this enwrapped attention with the objects of our mindfulness, a sense of peace in the midst of them. So the rapture leads to tranquility, which leads to happiness, which leads to concentration. Hear that. The cause of concentration is happiness. Not like, oh yes, be with, be with the breath, moment to moment, nailing, nailing the attention back to the breath, back to the breath. Just like, got to be there. Oh my God, I can't believe, like judging yourself for not having been with the breath all the way through, judging yourself for the mind wandering. The cause, the cause and condition of concentration is happiness that arises from the cultivation, just the gentle, persevering, patient cultivation of mindfulness over time. Concentration leads to knowledge and vision of things as they really are, which leads to disenchantment, which leads to dispassion, which leads to emancipation and knowledge of the destruction of the taints. So this again, pointing to the promise of the practice, we start to see that um, this particular experiences that are just passing through are are not the reliable route to happiness and we so we start to not depend on them so much and that's where the disenchantment the dispassion can arise so that's a little bit just a taste of how the path is a progressive refinement of the quality of joy Different flavors there, you know, in tranquility and concentration, happiness. There can even be just a joy in, in seeing a thought arise and pass and then going, oh, I didn't have to believe that. Right? Like, oh, it was just there and it's gone and, you know, it's just a poof. It's just a ephemeral thing in the mind. We can start to free ourselves more and more. At a choice point here. And I think I'll probably just bring it to a close, mostly. I do want to say that giving this talk um, to you all is kind of like drinking a big glass of cold water after walking through a desert. (laughs) Uh, It's really... um, sweet to um, be able to uh, share the Dhamma, connect around the Dhamma with this group of API heritage people and um, really uh, a joy to connect because it's very rare and um, yeah, yeah, it's very rare. And I do feel that I get to share in a way absolutely that um, I Things, stories I would never tell people about David Kalal. But I got to tell you. 
by the way, they three of the people in Salga plus the Irish, uh, an Irish guy, in nineteen in twenty twenty won an award for that active activism in that summer because Salga and the Irish Lesbian Gay Association ILGO they both supported each other ILGO in getting into the St. Patrick's Day Parade and Salga in getting into the India Day Parade (laughs) and really connected around this British colonizer thing (laughs) and still to this day so they got an award a Jenny Award uh, recognizing it's just called, from the Generations Project in 2020, and David reached out to me and sent me a letter that we had written to Ilgo back then. Um, there were six of us in Salga. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so amazing. Good memories. Okay. Um, thank you all for your attention. Let's just sit and let the words dissolve in the air for a little while. I did realize I have a couple of announcements to make. One is that we are trying to connect you all together. We have a sense that some of you may want to connect around um, possibly, you know, um, maybe heritage, maybe the Korean-American folks want to connect, or South Asian folks, or mixed race, I don't know. Um, or maybe, maybe it could be around anything, but maybe location, maybe, the, maybe folks from New York, maybe folks from Boston. Um, and so we want to give an opportunity for that to happen. And one of the things that's difficult about this is you may really be in multiple groups, right? Um, so you might want to kind of flip between groups. That's possible. Um, but we have developed the best way that we could think of. It may be quite clumsy, but hopefully it will work out. Um, but we're doing our best. So... We, outside, there will be a board um, that has locations on it that the staff have written locations, certain rooms, um, and then there's, it says group theme after it. And tomorrow is closing. We'll go for about an hour, and then there will be 45 minutes for groups to be able to meet in these locations. So if you would like to, for people to meet around a particular theme, um, just write the theme there. And you can write your name, and other people can write their name afterwards. And you might want to put your contact information in there, or you know, it's really going to be it's going to be organic how this is going to unfold. Um, but you can go and meet that group of people can go and meet in that location after the closing tomorrow. Okay. Um, did I explain that? Is there something else I need to explain around that? What? Oh, yeah, of course, it's totally optional. You may have to leave or want to leave, and you may not, you know, it's silent retreat. You may 
feel kind of tender talking or connecting. Of course, it's optional. Um, so I hope, you know, I hope that's supportive. We hope that's supportive. And then um, the other thing I wanted to say is you, if you look at the schedule for tomorrow morning, it's a little different. Um, there's, for this last day of retreat, we wanted to really offer a half an hour sit in the morning. So at 6 o'clock, uh, Melanie will be here and there will be chanting and then there will be a, a formal sitting from 6 that time, 6 to 6.30, starting with a chant. Okay? All right. Thanks so much again for your attention. And we'll be back in a half an hour with chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.